in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So yeah, why don't I, uh, why don't I welcome us? I'll pray and then I'll uh, kick us off with some announcements, all right? Lord, thanks so much for this time and for this group that we can be here together. Uh, we thank you also that we're, we're starting to turn these dials toward being back, to, back together in person. Uh, we do pray for uh, your blessing on all the, all the things we have going on with St. Mark's, that we might be able to get a morning service uh, and start meeting somewhat soon. Uh, we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you guys. Thanks for being here on Zoom. I read a joke online about how everyone's becoming like a thumbs up person because of the way Zoom is and that it's actually affecting real life, like people are doing more thumbs up in real life. So there you go. One of the many things that will be forever changed after COVID. Um, Well, I found that it is a rule that whenever I'm going to be preaching on something that is sure to offend or be somewhat controversial, we have uh, more people or visitors or whatever. So here we are. But I was thinking, you know, last Sunday was Mother's Day, and more than almost any time of the year, you get people brandishing a certain Bible passage. You know, certain times of the year have certain passages that that are brought to mind. And uh, something that struck me is that often the, the people that brandish a certain passage might often be the ones who misunderstand it the most or who are kind of forcing it into an ideology rather than just reading what the text says. And the one that I have in mind for Mother's Day last week is Proverbs 31. And if you're not familiar, you can, you can pull out a Bible or you can um, just listen along to me later. Um, but starting with verse 10 in, chapter, uh, or in Proverbs 31, it talks about a kind of idealized woman or idealized wife. Um, you know, this is 3,000 years ago, but it's, it, it talks about an idealized woman. So this gets brought up a lot around Mother's Day. Now, my goal over the course of, say, just in our general ministry in the next 6, 12 months is to challenge two arguments. But today, we'll mostly just spend time um, challenging one. Um, and I want to show how maybe the, the Bible is not in line with uh, at least the more, maybe some of the the ideology, or maybe the if you, if you grew up in a conservative evangelical church, uh, some of the ideas that you maybe were steeped in around this chapter that maybe don't actually fit the reading of the chapter as well as, as they should. Um, so again, there'll be some discomfort on purpose for maybe people who everyone has an opinion on this chapter, or they they would after reading it. And my sermon, or at least my overall ministry, is meant to challenge both sides equally. But today it'll be a little bit more of a challenge if you if if you grew up in an evangelical church. So if you feel like if during this message you're kind of like pumping your fist, like yes, somebody's finally saying this, know that there's at least just a a teeing up of the other side at the end of the sermon that maybe we feel less comfortable. Or if you're feeling pushed or you're feeling challenged, like, hey, you're kind of attacking my view, just know that at the end, I'll kind of at least tee up what the critique would be of the other side. So no one's really meant to feel uh, comfortable (laughs) at the end of this. It's just meant to get us thinking and ultimately looking to the Bible rather than our own culture or our own ideologies for the answer. And uh, about Friday, I was like, why did I choose to do this? But it was, I was already so deep in. I'm like, I can't just stop and turn back and choose another passage. So we're just going to go for it and, and see how it goes. Um, all right. So uh, I want to remind you that at Capital City Church, we are not a church that claims to have answers on some of the tertiary or most disputed things. So there are many things in the Christian life that really great uh, pastors, leaders, theologians, uh, 
disagree on. So there's some things that are absolutely you know essential: the divinity of Christ, the death, the resurrection, the cross. We will not play like willy-nilly on that. Like, oh, some people believe this, some people believe that, no big deal. But then there's all these tertiary things like. How did human beings come to be here? You know, did God, did God snap his fingers? Did evolution play a part in it? And God oversaw that? Like we we don't, those are things that there's freedom to disagree with in the body of Christ. And we at Capital City Church celebrate the diversity that we have in those things. And this is one of those. So I just want you to know, uh, there's, a, there's a quote I, I adhere to. Uh, it is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity. And it just means that in essentials, in the actual core of the Christian faith, we will be united and not um, not fight, not have disagreement, or not call somebody maybe a Christian if they disagree with those essentials. In non-essentials, like some of the things we'll talk about today, there's liberty. And, and I, I champion the fact that there are people at Capital City who have differing views. And that was always my hope. We don't want to have uh, a groupthink we don't want, like uh, Tyler would tell you this, Tyler Bacher, our pastoral resident, um, you know, he's he's our pastoral resident for many reasons. Um, but one of the reasons I was excited that he came on is that he and I actually would differ in our overall view over some of these issues. And that's actually one of the reasons I want him as a pastoral resident, because you don't want just one viewpoint, just one take on these things. So in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And this might be the most important, that when something is not an essential we we submit our opinions with humility. We we deal with others with charity and just know that we, we don't really know what... At the end of the day, we don't know the right answer and we have to wait for God. Um, so I want to lay bare what the Bible actually says here and get people thinking about this. So if you did, again, I'm going to pick on the more conservative evangelical background. In case you grew up in that, your view of Proverbs 31 might be somewhat conflated with uh, an, a sort of a culturally appropriated 1950s woman, leave it to beaver, you know, at home, dinner ready, in the oven for like the hard working husband when he comes home. So the Proverbs 31 view in that movement can sometimes be um, she's married, she has kids, you know, she stays at home, you know, she homeschools. Uh, to an outsider, you know, it might just kind of seem kind of um, quaint and traditional and leave it to beaver, or to somebody more critical of that way of life, it can kind of seem maybe like that woman has had her will almost taken away or let that she's sort of completely hanging on her husband for any sort of authority or leadership. Uh, and that's you know more of a critical view, but there's a lot of people who, who think that or see that. Um, and as I was sort of being formed in my faith, I remember maybe being a late teenager and reading Proverbs 31, and then, you know, I didn't know Hebrew yet. I had never read any biblical commentaries. I didn't know much about Jewish backgrounds. But I didn't really need any of that to read Proverbs 31 in English and then pick my head up and kind of look around and say, wait, are we talking about the same chapter here? Because I'm, I'm seeing something a little different. Uh, so again, it's important to read the Bible for what it actually says and not kind of squeeze it through our own ideological paradigm. So let's, let's read it verse by verse and see what it has to say. If you're more of a visual learner, feel free to uh, open up your own Bible or pull up a little web browser on the side and follow along. But I will read each verse, starting with verse 10, as we go through it. And then I'll break to, to comment as we go. So starting with verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. 
for a good year or two, when I read that word, verse, I thought I, I thought the word was grain because my eyes just passed over it. I was like, oh, he'll have no lack of grain. Well, that's kind of interesting. Anyway, no lack of gain. Uh, so notice already that this woman, this Proverbs 31 woman, is a select example. It's not talking about, say, a young woman who's single. It's not an older woman, not a widow. This is a married woman, and then later you'll find in the chapter that she still has children in the home. So it doesn't mean that this chapter can't apply to others in different situations, but it's just, at least at the outset, it's important to recognize <clears throat> how the situation is different. Also, a huge one is that she lives in an agrarian age, and we live in an information economy. So already we're talking about an entire societal difference that's, that's, that's huge. Again, though, there are things that can apply. Um, verse 12, she does him, her, her husband, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. So as we go, maybe uh, keep in the back of your head kind of a tally of the trades or professions she engages in that in the modern era could be a full-time job. Just You don't have to like actually be too distracted by it, but just keep a general tally of how many different trades or professions she's awesome at. Okay, so wool and fax, uh, wool and flax, which is uh, making clothing, food acquisition, trade preparation. Notice it says that she's she's like a merchant. So she's probably not going to China herself, but she's dealing with all these merchants that are always coming through on the, the various ancient uh, pathways, the ancient highways. Uh, she doesn't just go to the local market; she brings her food from afar. So she's uh, she's not just this home to market to homebody. I mean, she's dealing with merchants who are coming from all over the world. She's getting food and spices and things from afar. So we have this sense that she's worldwide. She understands economics, trade. She probably speaks multiple languages. Right? It's kind of breaking from the the, the traditional view of this a bit. Um, verse verse. 15 says that she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So here she is running the household for employed workers or or maidens and seeing to their provisions while they do what they do. So off the bat also, many of us aren't going to be in this camp, but she's fairly wealthy. She has personal attendance. So she also works as a manager. So you can keep adding the different professions that she's uh, skilled in or, or professional in. Uh, Interestingly, this is where we get the word economics from. Um, In Greek, oikos means home, and nomos or nomikos means law or management. And so economics is the management of the home, uh, oikonomia, economy. Um, And I always thought, like, the term home economics when I was young, I always thought, like, why do they call it home economics? That's, like, the silliest term. And then I, it's just funny looking that, like, that, that meaning is actually closer to the original than if you open up the Financial Times and see how they're talking about the economy. Um, this is interesting when it says that she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. It is specifically using words that only get used with lionesses. So uh, hunting at dark, like a cat, you know, is, is predisposed for like, uh, not, not that this woman is hunting, but it's using this sort of shrewd, fierce language for, um, capturing, providing, seeking the good for your family, like a lioness, which I, I just find fascinating. Uh, This next verse is probably my favorite, verse 16. This is the one that really did it for me even when I was 19. And I I thought like something something is wrong between what I'm reading and what my ideology is telling me I should read this as. Verse 16 says, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. 
I was like, man, she considers a field and buys it. Do you know how expensive fields are? Like, I mean, in today's money, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, it, it doesn't say that she's like, oh, this might be a good business venture, but what do I know? I'm just an ancient woman. So I'll wait till Hub gets home and ask him what he thinks. And maybe he'll give me a pat on the back and say, I can go buy earrings because I had a good idea. Like that's, I, sorry, that's kind of on the nose, but that is not what's happening. She considers it and she buys it. Now I'm not, I'm not encouraging married couples not to you know, have conversations before really big expenditures are made. Um, sorry, I'm getting some, uh, having some laughter back here. This is fun. Um, so obviously talk about big expenditures before you make them, but here it doesn't say that she does, right? She just, she considers a field and she buys it. So she's strong, she's educated, uh, she's literate because you can't sign all those, all, all the documents, even in the ancient world, when land was transferred, you would, there'd be documents involved. She's shrewd, she knows how to trade, she, she knows how to deal with money, she has authority, power to make decisions. And it says that her husband rejoices in her. Like he knows that she's got this under control. So now add a few more trades to her uh, CV, to her resume. She's an investor in real estate, a landowner, a winemaker, a viticulturist, and a farmer. So now, by now I've lost count. I think we're well above 10 trades that she could be earning money in if you were to call these modern job descriptions. Um, and I think, yeah, this verse more than any other made me realize like I had, I had not been interpreting this chapter quite right. So verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. So it's like, well, that's that's interesting and a challenge to modern ideas of women, right? Like here it is championing that she's physically strong. I mean, planting a vineyard takes serious strength and work. You know, plowing, uh, I don't know if there's an official word for like when you de-rock, like when you take the rocks out of, do you guys know? I don't, like when you, you when you go through a field, there's always boulders and rocks and you have to clear them all out. There's a word for it, I forget. Uh, but cutting out a wine press as well, I mean, it just takes... Lots of work, you know, manual work, and she's not afraid to be physically strong. It's it's certainly not something you'd hear like on a makeup commercial or something, right? I imagine her like chiseling away at her wine press, and then she like looks to the camera, like maybe she's born with it, you know? Like, like, like it's just this ancient woman like making a wine press. All right, so I'll move on. Verse eighteen: She perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. So again, through experience and trading, she is able to, uh, this is another trade, basically to look at merchandise and know what it's worth, right? Like there's people who do this professionally for homes and for plots of land. They actually, they can look at something and appraise what it's worth. Um, and her lamp does not go out at night. So the, the idea is that her life is not filled with leisure, but with uh, productive work. Now, I, I wanna be careful not to be, I think we have like a, a workaholism, you know, productivity, culture. Um, but she, you know, the Jews used to work six days a week, 10 hours a day, which is probably too much. It's 60 hours a week, 50% more than full-time workers work today. Um, but that would have been her schedule too, working six days a week, 10 hours a day, but then the Sabbath was completely off. Um, but yeah, you get the sense her life is uh, not filled with leisure, but filled with productive work and then good rest as well on the Sabbath. Uh, verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. So the, the proverb spends a lot of time talking about her making clothing, um, both for her family and also to sell to the merchants she trades with. And the point is not so much that like making clothing is like so awesome. It's more that clothing was extremely valuable in that era and it was something that she was skilled in. So like one tunic or one garment 
would cost uh, two weeks worth of wages. One coat was a month's worth of wages. So we're talking in today's dollars, we're talking a coat would be thousands of dollars and a garment would be at least in the, maybe in the thousands as well um, by today's reckoning of how much you earn over the course of weeks or, or months. So they were, clothes were extremely expensive because materials were really hard and people had to work on them by hand. And that's why often you read in the New Testament about Jesus, you know, if someone asks for your tunic, not one of your tunics, if someone asks for your tunic, you know, give it off, give, give it, get, give it off your back or however he says it. A lot of times people just had one, possibly two, because they were so expensive. So she is using her skills to create something needed and valuable in her world. It's not about like making clothes is like the thing necessarily, but that she was producing something valuable, tradable, and a highly sought after commodity in her world. Now, uh, this is a bit uncomfortable in a modern era because we're sensitive about money and wealth, but it does keep kind of hinting at her wealth, which is like, as a pastor preparing this message, I'm like, well, this is a little awkward because like, we're, you know, we're, we're all wealthy by like, by the fact that we're moderns, but none of us are like necessarily particularly wealthy compared to the other standard of living that all Americans have. So I was like, well, how, what do I do with this? The fact that she's clearly wealthy in her context. Um, you know, she's well off. She has access to scarlet and purple clothing. Um, you know, in the modern day, you have synthetic dyes. So any color of clothing costs the same. But in the ancient world, I don't know if you've heard of this, almost only the extremely wealthy and kings could have purple because it doesn't occur in nature. Um, there's only like one or two animals in all of the world that produce purple. There's like some kind of a worm and some kind of like a sea mollusk polyp thing. I forget. And to, um, to work with these animals in order to get enough, to work with these organisms in order to get enough purple dye is just extremely expensive. So anyway, she had access to these colors. She clearly is, is wealthy. Uh, she has maidens under her, you know, maybe she would have been born well or married well, or maybe it was just through her own, uh, virtue and hard work that they that they got to to their wealth. But what's important to remember is that being wealthy is not a sin, but it's the love of money, right? That sort of unhealthy pursuit of money that is a sin. And the question is, what does she do with it? I love this. In in verse twenty, you know, to contrast maybe with um, what Tyler was saying about the I forget it's like the rich the rich man two weeks ago. Instead of building bigger silos and just kind of keeping the treadmill of wealth running. It says in verse 20 that she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So again, sometimes wealth comes largely by chance and accident. People are born into it, your family name, or it could be through her and and her husband's industry and wise living that they became wealthy. But what's important is what they do with it, right? There's a... with great power comes great responsibility, right? How often do you hear a Proverbs 31 and a Spider-Man reference in the same sermon? Um, but she has a responsibility, and God has given us all a responsibility to care for those who are less fortunate. Um, let's see here. Verse 21. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So she spent time working, so she's not afraid of calamities ahead. Um, I, I guess you know one parallel might be having a, an emergency fund so that when COVID hits, you know, you're somewhat set to go, or you have enough that you can help others as well, which is what we hope to be doing as Capital City. Uh, we've been really fortunate in that we have, we have not lost a single uh, monthly giver from our account, which is like unheard of for churches. So we want to be able to help others as well during this time. Um, 
her husband, it says, is a, is a civic leader, you know, someone who's a, a leader in the town's life and government. That's what it means to uh, sit among the elders of the land. The gate, the city gate is where all of that uh, leadership, civic decisions, political, military decisions all happened. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. I'm always surprised by that verse. I always forget it's there. And when I see it, I'm like, that's awesome. Like she laughs at the time to come. So why is she laughing at the time to come? And it's because she has worked hard enough to prepare her family and her business. And she's really not worried about a bad trading season. If the merchants don't come through, if they have a bad harvest, she's not worried about it. She just, she laughs at the time to come because they're well prepared. Uh, verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So she's filled with teaching, with wisdom. Have you ever asked yourself, like, how do you think she learned? And, you know, whether formal or informal, education is incredibly valuable. And you can only, you know, water can only flow one direction, right? It goes downward. And so if that well, if that spring, if that uh, reservoir is not full, then the water has nowhere to go. Like if, if you're just like a little trickle on the ground, there's really nowhere to flow out from that. But if you have this huge reservoir of knowledge, of wisdom, then there's something that you have to pour out with. She's been trained well and uses that to bless others. Verse 27, um, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Again, she keeps stressing. She's not idle. She's hardworking, but she is, would be, it doesn't remind us here, but we know that as a Jew, she would be resting on the seventh day. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The Bible all throughout champions beauty in the heart, you know, inward beauty rather than outward beauty. Um, you know, beauty that does not fade as opposed to beauty that does fade as the years and wrinkles add on. Uh, I've just looking around, not to be too <laughs> critical, but I've just noticed it's interesting to see that some secular fields, like just academic conferences, authors, groups, whoever it is, seem to understand this better than many Christian women's conferences. Like if you if you look at just the advertising or, or just tune in to like a, a Christian women's conference, and it depends on which, you know, which theology, which denomination they're coming from. But a lot of Christian women's conferences uh, seem to have missed this and the glam and the need to appear a certain way almost seems to be stronger there than in almost anything else except for like uh, entertainment or media, which is, I think, too bad and kind of misses the point of Proverbs 31. Verse uh, 31, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is important. So though her husband's industrious work tends to center, say, a little bit more on leadership or civic life, life outside the home, her industrious work tends, I mean, she, you know, she works outside the home plenty, but it tends to be maybe more home-centered or have the home in view. Now that can open a whole can of worms as to like how normative is that for us today and all that, all the rest. There's all sorts of considerations, all kinds of disagreements on that. But notice this, her work is not just appreciated in the home, even for an ancient woman 3,000 years ago. She is known in the gates. This is the political, civic, you know, market center of the village, the men of the village, whatever. Uh, and her work is known and praised among the whole community. And I think that's an important thing to remember for that, for that verse as well. 
So if anything is clear in this passage, it's that this you know, idealized woman, at least from 3,000 years ago, is absolutely a strong woman. Uh, one thing I was telling uh, some of our, our leaders in the leadership meeting a few days ago is that um, I forget the two kinds of value. There's like a, there are values that you try for in a church plant or a business or something that you start. There's like the things that you say is going to be your culture. And then hopefully that turns out to be right. And so, like some of ours are like uh, serving the least of these mercy ministry, a care for you know, the word actually going through the Bible. Um, but then there are also accidental values that aren't bad. They're just the kind of values that also grow up around your church that you weren't necessarily expecting, but they're kind of a delight to see. Um, and one thing that we've, that I've definitely noticed even early on is that we didn't necessarily say like, we want to be a church plant that has a lot of strong women on it, but man, we have them. And so and it's really cool. And so anyway, thank you to you, to you women. We just, re- I realized really quickly, like we have a lot of like, I don't know, a lot of these sort of like strong, I don't know like the word strong, fierce, you know, leader, lioness, whatever word you want to use. Like we have a lot of these women in Capital City and that's, that's really cool to see. Um, all right. So this, this woman, Proverbs 31, is filled with wisdom. She's kind and gentle, but she's also this sort of fierce, shrewd, productive, industrious woman. She has a keen sense for the market, for the worth of her work, and she's absolutely a businesswoman. I, I lost count, but she's got something like 12 to 20 professional trades, if you count it by modern standards. That'd be fun to, to, to count it up later as to all the different things she could earn money for in a modern economy. So at this point, some of you might be like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, if you read Proverbs 31, that's what it's always said. But if you came up from an environment where this was sort of interlaced with that 1950s idea of the 19, you know, 1950s Leave it to Beaver style wife, then this can be surprising to actually just slowly read through it verse by verse and talk about what, is she, what does she actually do with her time? What kind of freedom and, and authority does she actually have with resources? What kind of respect does she have among uh, men and leaders in this ancient village where presumably it'd be even further, you know, behind the times or whatever? Um, so I hope uh, for some, I know this will this will bother some, but I hope for some this can be freeing. Like, oh, that's that's who the Proverbs 31 woman is. I, I didn't realize that before. So I just want to tee up that conversation. And um, the funny thing is, I think I've spent a lot of time picking on that interpretation and sort of kind of pushing back, comparing it to just our plain English reading of Proverbs 31. Uh, but there is a challenge to be had the other way as well. And, and I, can't, I can't pick on it nearly as easily, not nearly as easy or popular to, to pick the other way. Uh, a lot of it's just that it's a can of worms. It can't be done well. You, you know, we've got, what, 50 people in this online, 40, 50 people in this online group right now. And probably each of us, if you really parsed it out, would have a different opinion. Like you couldn't actually lump any of us completely in with another on some of these things. So it is easy to offend. And it's kind of a moving target whenever you talk about gender or um, sex, uh, the roles of men and women, the family. I mean, these are just hard topics. Uh, as an illustration, Aubrey and I watched the movie As Good As It Gets a couple of weeks ago. Anyone seen that? Raise a hand, thumbs up, people. Um, it came out in the late 90s. It has Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson. I think it's Jack Nicholas Nicholson. Nicholson is the actor, right? Um, and it just absolutely blew me away because in terms of some of these things being a moving target, I mean, this movie, you know, presumably, was written by L.A., New York City, you know, progressives, right at the, the, the heart of urban culture, presumably kind of on the, the cusp of whatever trends were coming. And it was only 20 years ago, but it was just remarkably 
it has aged terribly in terms of like gender roles and stuff. I just, I could not believe it. And this is like the world, like just looking from the, the, the world's own view, um, even pre Me Too, but post Me Too, I mean, that movie is just ridiculous. Like the notion that Helen Hunt could uh, hurt Jack Nicholson's ego, even for being an absolute jerk, was just like the worst thing to either of them that he could possibly ever be uh, dropped down a notch. Like she basically just says she's completely not interested in anything romantically with him because he's a total jerk. And that's like one of the huge conflicts of the movie. I'm like, are you kidding? Like this guy's not a king. Like you're not in his harem. Like I just, I could not believe, I mean, watch it. It's actually a pretty good movie in most ways. Um, but you can just see how quickly our own culture even has no idea what they think. I mean, this is just 20 years ago and I could not believe how out of time and out of touch these, you know, this wasn't, and these weren't like rural Minnesotans writing this movie. Okay. These were like the progressive urban, you know, seemingly the people who would kind of be predicting what people would be feeling in 10 years or 15, you know? Um, but it's just so out of touch. And I realize that like our society is just treading water. Like they, they don't really know what they believe either. It's not like there's really, there's like some, you know, number of biblical views and then some like external view. It's like no one really knows and it's just it's always changing i watched uh, a really interesting video of uh hillary clinton actually in 2004 uh vehemently um supporting only uh one man one woman marriage and i just thought like man 2004 like i was almost an adult in 2004 and it's like it's just really interesting to see just how quickly you know things change uh even in our own culture so the challenge to you know the challenge to whatever our society's idea today is, because it'll be different tomorrow, it was different five years ago, but the challenge to today is, you know, should this Proverbs 31 woman then or now, should she and her husband have the same goals and why? I know people take different uh, tracks on this. Should they look for praise in the same places? So she's very industrious, she works, but this is interesting Again, this is 3,000 years ago, but notice how much of her care and concern is for her family. And notice how much of her industry is focused on the economy of her home. The husband and wife are both well-respected, but notice that the husband's honor comes, it seems, from first from the city gates, his role in civic life and his family. Her honor comes from her family and husband and from the city gates. So they both get their honor and status from the same places, but the chair, sort of first chair, second chair, in which those two things are named, the order in which those statuses and ranks come, are mentioned in reverse order. Um, and the tricky question for the Christian today, you know, no longer an agrarian, agrarian economy, it's been a long time since then, uh, the question is of normativity. It's so hard to sift through. Like, if we see this pattern praised or commended, does that mean that there's any tie over to today for us? Um, and again, people, great theologians have differed on this. That's why we have charity with each other, because people disagree on that. Is there any normativity to that? Is there anything to be seen in that principle, or is that just a reflection of their time? So just as we poke fun at maybe uh, our conservative evangelical upbringing, um, you know, reading these things through an ideological grid, though it's a harder question, I think it's equally valid to say, might our society being, be, what, might they be forcing everything also through an ideological grid uh, at just as bad a level, just as blindly, and theirs is changing every few years. Do, do they have a monopoly on what is right? Did they 20 years ago when As Good As It Gets came out? Or do they now? Will they ever? Um, I don't think 
they can seem to make up their minds. And I don't think they will ever have the right answer either. And so I, I suspect I, I'm, I'm more careful here on purpose and I strike a raw nerve because it's, it's harder to, to critique that without stepping on toes. And if it riles people and it's too hard, then that's fine. Maybe we leave it for a while. It, it wasn't necessarily my you know, intense goal to go through this in the first couple of years at Capital City. Um, and we celebrate the fact that we take different views on this, right? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Um, but if people, you know, if, if, again, if we're riled, we could just sort of move on and people could like oh, say that's interesting. But if people really like this, thinking on some of these things, what do... What do some of these things have to say to us today? Then maybe in a few months when we're all back at church, we could actually do a longer series if people wanted um, and have some men and women together speaking on different views on these things within the body of Christ. It could be something. So anyway, if you particularly like either of those options, you could let me know in an email or something. Um, But all this said, we as Christians are not stuck in the Old Testament. We have something else. So what does the work of Jesus on the cross do to enlighten this passage for a Christian today. And I kept thinking about, here I'm talking about the New Testament, I, but I keep thinking about Genesis 1, kind of the earliest you can go in our, in our canon, um, in the image of God, that God made us all in his image, and he made us male and female, with the understanding, I think, that we are somehow more in his image when you have both, you know, or have a society of both, or have a marriage of both, or a family of both, um, than when we're than when we're apart. We're, we're sort of, we're greater than the sum of our parts together. We somehow, we somehow reflect God's image, both male and female, more truly when you have both represented. Um, he made us in his image, young and old, married or single, with or without children. And he created us to know him, to love him, and to worship him. He created us for good work to serve the poor and to be like Jesus in the world around us. So like those are essentials. No one will ever debate those. Even if we're kind of confused, there, there's some things that every era has to confront and kind of question, you know, uh, norm, gender roles were never questioned for uh, millennia and millennia. And then in the last 150 years, as we've just all woken up in a different environment, all of a sudden it becomes this huge, like, well, our whole life changed after millennia. So what does that mean? But these things don't change. He created us to know him, to worship him, to love him, and uh, to do good work, to serve the poor, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us. So whether you and your family uh, takes a more traditional or more modern approach to some of these questions, know why you do it biblically. Okay, There are great pastors, leaders, theologians, thinkers who have taken uh, any degree, any number of positions on this, and there's really good biblical case, honestly, for all of them. But no, like, Work out your view of your family, of your marriage, of your future, you know, hope for that, whatever it might be. Figure out what you think, but know why biblically. And have some grace with yourself. I mean, again, I could not believe that movie, guys. Just for a case study, just watch it and see what I'm talking about. Uh, Have some grace with yourself because we are in a raging river of change around these issues year to year. And it is tough to figure out. I mean, 10,000 years of an agrarian economy and then we wake up overnight all of us living in cities in an information economy and like the whole world changed uh, in, a, in the blink of an eye, historically speaking. And there's the dust is not even close to settled yet. Uh, so give yourselves grace um, and know this, that we can focus on these things, these lessons from Proverbs 31, whether you're a woman or a man, work hard, love God, have wisdom and kindness on your lips, love your family, serve the poor, 
And just like she is and her husband, if you do these things, you will be called blessed. Amen. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll do some discussion questions. They're pretty, they're pretty soft discussion questions, so don't, don't worry. Don't, don't run away. Whenever I'm like, we're going to do discussion, and all of a sudden, like, four people just, like, vanish right away. All right. I'll pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful chapter, this inspiring chapter. We pray that you would teach us uh, in all humility, Lord, to uh, just to read it, to read the words for what they say, to interpret them for what they mean, uh, and to do our best as our society changes around us at lightning pace to figure out how we can best honor you in our own lives, in our, uh, you know, if we're married or not, in our marriages, in our family. Um, help us to honor you, to love you, to be your hands and feet to the world, to serve the poor, and to be an example of the image, the spark, the divine that you have put within us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.